Welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in a myriad of ways. Our subject today is the adversarial nature of contemporary politics, considering its causes, its ill effects, and also what its benefits may be. Those discussing the subject are Wendy Chamberlain, Stephen Gethins, and Daniel Greenberg. Wendy Chamberlain is MP for Northeast Fife and the Liberal Democrats Chief Whip and Spokesperson for Work and Pensions. Stephen Gethins has been an MP at Westminster and the Scottish National Party's frontbench spokesman for international affairs in Europe. He is now Acting Vice Principal International Affairs at the University of St Andrews. Daniel Greenberg is a lawyer specialising in legislation and the legislative process. Since the 1st of January 2023, he has been Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards. And I'm John Hudson, Co-Director of the Institute of Legal and Constitutional Research at the University of St Andrews. So to start off, uh, I wonder how far actually the contemporary politi- world of contemporary politics actually can be characterised as adversarial, or is that a caricature? I wonder if, Daniel, you could start off with that. Well, I think there's a big gap between perception and reality on this, John, because inevitably the the media focus on the big ticket events in Parliament, Prime Minister's questions being the obvious example, but also around the other big events where controversy is what media are looking for, that's what they're reporting. So to many people what they know about Parliament is people sitting either side of the chamber shouting at each other, you know, Prime Minister's questions and similar events. The reality is that 95% or more of business is very much not adversarial, at least not in that way. And some of the most important work that Parliament does, for example, is done on joint committees of both houses many of which are run on a strictly non-adversarial, non-partidical basis. And if I can give just one example, the Joint Committee on Strategy Instruments, I think it's fair to say probably nobody has ever heard of it, except government lawyers and parliamentarians who sit on it. It's a phenomenally influential committee for government lawyers. It makes a serious difference to the rule of law, but it very much relishes the fact nobody's ever heard of it. It keeps its proceedings non-adversarial. They're strictly consensual. And that's why the committee is regarded so highly by government lawyers who deal with it. So big difference, really, perception and reality, lots of adversarial stuff in public, huge amount of non-adversarial stuff behind the scenes, which is where a lot of the real and useful work of parliament takes place. Wendy, would you agree with this, or do you think, in a way, the focus on the 5% has its reason? There's a lot I agree with, but I suppose my question is, is, has politics ever not been adversarial? I think you just need to look back in the annals of of history, both both in in the UK and and beyond, to know that 
this this has always existed in, in our politics and sometimes existed in, in quite a violent way. And I think certainly when you look at the UK and you look at other parts of the world currently, it's probably less adversarial. And um, where I think the challenge is currently and the media and the interest and what people see and, and digest as part of that. But I do think there is something around the impact of COVID uh, on the 2019 in, in 19 intake in Westminster, um, which in some ways I was slightly insulated from by becoming Chief Whip when I did in September 2020, in that realistically we had a cohort, quite a large cohort of new politicians, largely from the Conservative side, who were elected and then existed in their own bubble for the best part of, of, of two years. So some of the very excellent work that Daniel was talking about there in relation to uh, cross-party working, select committees, that kind of engagement, it happened in a much more limited way. And I think some of that has fed into some of the real toxicity that we've potentially experienced and, and indeed, uh, John, why we're talking about it today. Stephen. So, Wendy, I was pre-2019, um, and, and actually Wendy's made a really interesting observation about COVID, because I, just to pick up on a couple of things that, that Wendy quite rightly pointed out, I remember sitting on select committees. Let's take, you know, when, when I was in Parliament, I sat in the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. One of the benefits of that is I was sitting, you know, there was one SNP member and then several Labour and Conservative members. It was best experience for me when I became a new MP because you were you were given issues, sometimes quite tricky issues, and you had to deal with them as a team within that committee. And that point about people will pick up on the adversarial stuff because it's exciting and it makes good telly. Um, the a, a, a committee sort of uh, sitting about and 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 cogitating over a tricky international issue does not make good telly and it doesn't make good media but that is as Daniel and Wendy have both pointed out that is the biggest part of a politician's day-to-day -day work I mean not just in select committees which I think are exceptional and, and, and you're supposed to but there are other areas um, and Wendy pointed out the impact of Covid so I was quite involved in cross-party efforts to prevent an, an, a no-deal Brexit in my time, you know, and that brought together Conservative, Labour, Liberal Democrat, SNP, Green, Plaid Cymru, MPs. Those negotiations took months, and they didn't take months because of the substance of where you were getting to. They took months because of the fact that we had to build up trust um, amongst ourselves, but also more broadly within our parties about what we were trying to achieve. I just take one example there, but that's something that I'm not sure, I don't know, but I'm not sure we could have built up those levels of trust and got to where we got to on, um, on, 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 on the legislation had we not been able to sit in the same room and look each other in the eye, have a drink, have a coffee, all the stuff that is perfectly normal in human interaction, not just in the House of Commons or the House of Lords, but actually in any workplace. You know, I, I work in a university now where there's a huge em emphasis, John, as you'll, as, as you'll be aware, on that human element. So I, th I think Wendy's made a really good point about the emphasis on, on, on the, the, the impact of COVID in particular, that 2019 intake. But could I build on that very briefly, John? Um, because I, I very much agree with everything that's just been said. And um, Wendy sort of touched on a point that I've noticed is that very often people, mem new members of parliament coming into parliament for the first time are also rather surprised by how non-adversarial a lot of it is. And in, in, my, in my role, I've been running 
principles in practice seminars, seminars about what the Nolan principles look like in the day-to-day -day life of an, of an MP's office. And we've been doing them cross-party. And it's been really interesting to watch staff of different of members from different parties looking at each other over the table and you can see them thinking wow it's all quite similar isn't it you know it's all it, it doesn't make much difference which party you're on how you deal with the public how you try and fight for your constituents we're all facing the same things and so so i think wendy is absolutely right maybe sometimes in the outside parliament it's even politicians who see it as more adversarial than it really is when you're inside parliament using the, 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 the workings of Parliament to get things done. We if I can add one more thing as well, I think the other aspect is, is how the role of the M an MP and, and, and constituents' expectations have changed in, in recent years. So in terms of what Daniel's talking about there, in terms of fighting for your constituents or delivering outcomes for them, um, you, you can do that in a consensual um, we, I think the challenge is, is where the, the actual politics uh, it com comes in. So I think, uh, uh, and, and I've read Ian Dunn's book and um, why West, how Westminster works and why it doesn't, and Daniel, you're, you're quoted in that, but I think there is that bit of, there's a real juxtaposition between the different roles an MP has, and sometimes the actual scrutiny of legislation plays very much a secondary role to being the constituency MP in a way that you know wasn't an issue in, in, in years gone past. And that's not to say that both things aren't important, but I suppose when an MP is looking at things, it you know, who are they ultimately responsible to? That's their constituents rather than their party. Within the adversarial element, which seems to be almost shrinking from the 5% that we originally allowed it, Wendy mentioned the effect of COVID. Uh, and the individualization effect that that had. Uh, but what about the relationship of adversarial politics to party? Does the current form of the party system developing from the late 18th century, but becoming much stronger in the probably the second half of the 20th century, has that had an effect? Uh, Stephen, could you start us with that? So I, I think there's a challenge of at Westminster, and, and, and this is one of the many areas where Wendy and I, although we're members of different parties, will, I, I suspect, agree because our political parties have a particular view on this, others don't share it, um, which is in terms of the first-past-the-post system. So the first-past-the-post system, you know, often with a series of safe seats um, that, 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 that you get, I think particularly in England, we've seen more of a turnover in Scotland in recent years for various reasons, but um, often you're appealing to your party base. You can also win elections on, say, 37, 38% of the vote by a thumping majority in Parliament. And I think that what that does in terms of first past the post, I think it encourages the adversarial system because, first of all, you're appealing to your base. There's less scope for working cross-party if one party has a thumping majority. Um, then there's less scope for it to engage on a cross-party basis. If you're in opposition without much power, well, what's your what's 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 your biggest job? And I'm I'm not talking about the local level when when you try, but I'm talking about the sort of national debate, if 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 you like, is to get noticed. You don't get noticed by saying the government's doing a great job. You 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 get noticed on areas where there might be some division. And I think that's sometimes, let's allow it the five percent, John. But I think that's sometimes why that. We we zero in on that five percent because fundamentally, 
if um, and, and Wendy and I fought an election um, to, 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 together, a very good natured one, I have to say. Um, but we fought, fought, fought an election together. But what, what, what were Wendy and I trying to do? Well, we're, we're, we're trying to say to, to a voter, well, vote for me, don't vote for the other person. And if, the, if somebody's saying, well, what's the difference between you? What, what, you know, then that's where the adversarial nature almost inevitably comes in to the democratic process. There's no point in having a democratic process if, if, if we're out asking voters, can you vote for can you vote for me, please, rather than Wendy? Why? Well, it doesn't really make much difference. So there is, um, the, I think, the adversarial nature often goes to the heart of it. And let's not forget, you know, I I think the adversarial nature has led us into places like Brexit, where we're not, um, where we're not discussing some really big, significant issues. On the flip side, we are discussing some issues about which people feel rightly passionate and they rightly disagree with each other. Democracies are better at decision-making because we disagree with each other. So I think that's, that's, that's to say the adversarial system can be damaging, but it is, it is also a, a critical part of our democratic process and it's why de- democracies are better at reaching good decisions than autocracies are, for example. We'll, we'll come on to the benefits of, or possible benefits of the adversarial nature of politics later on. But Wendy, your turn to respond to Stephen or add to Stephen. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot to, I, I agree with there. And I suppose if you think about it, here we are in, in conference season um, with the expectation that this is the last set of conferences before the Westminster elections next year. And the starting gun as it were, as the media is saying, has already been fired. And, and the reality is, is that get out the vote operations are actually about identifying who your core vote is and ensuring that they turn out on polling day, which means that as time goes on, you don't speak to the people who are, are either entirely not persuadable or might have been um, if you took a longer period of time or discussion. But but basically the whole purpose of, of the party operation to get its candidate over the line is is, is ensuring or, or reducing the number of people that you speak to so that come polling day, you're, you're only speaking to your voters. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges of, of First Past the Post, where that lack of fairness or that, as, as Stephen rightly pointed out with the percentages, where that delivers a, a majority and people feel that their voices haven't been heard. And, and this isn't just about uh, adversarial nature of politics, but I think it's coming down to that trust in politics. Um, I'm very conscious of this as a former police officer, that uh, trust in policing has, has been usually eroded uh, in my time as a, as, as a parliamentarian. But I think we do have this bit of, well, you know, it's not a case of why should I vote for you? You're all as bad as, as, as each other. And how do you encourage good people into politics if that's the attitude that they're going to experience on, on the doorsteps? So I think the voting system for me comes down to the, 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 the very the very heart of it. And that's just not even in terms of the voting system, but just even the way Parliament is set up, the very adversarial nature of the chamber, which adds into that sort of almost kind of bear pit mentality that you get at PMQs. That was one of the weirdest things for me of how loud it is in the chamber, um, because the microphones pick up. Um, the questions and answers so well that you don't realise how 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 loud it is. Um, you know, it's not a particularly edifying. When I do have people who are in on the side gallery, I do think they must come away and think, "Is this really the best? Is this really the best that we can do?" And what, what does that culture lead us to? It leads us to banal answers. 
and you know Captain Hindsight jokes etc etc nothing that makes people really think that uh, that this is is worth engaging in or, or, or will make a difference and my final point is just I think there is this bit where being an MP is kind of seen at the top of the tree but you know I feel quite strongly that councillors particularly councillors who are either in charge of a scrutiny committee or indeed in power at a local authority have more direct impact on people's day-to-day -day lives than I do as an MP and, and Stephen's nodding his head I mean he'll remember from his time as an MP that you know so much of our casework is actually council in its nature but it's the bit that has the most discernible impact on people's lives you know sorting out a housing issue for somebody can be can be frankly transformational. Yeah, can I, sorry to, to jump in, can I heartily agree with, with, with Wendy there, the bit that people don't see, first of all, she's right about the noise, I remember that when I stood up, it was, it was terrifying, that's why you raise your voice a little bit, because you're getting noise yes. from every, every side, but this point on, I think, councillors, and as, as Wendy will agree with me, political volunteers as well, so firstly, councillors do a phenomenal job, you know, they get paid very poorly, they work exceptionally hard, any problems with your bins with local flooding with a the school whole range of areas go through your councillor and I think that's often um overlooked and Wendy's right I can remember and actually it didn't really matter which political party a particular councillor came from they'd serve everybody um they would work exceptionally hard I, and, and actually I, I can remember so let's take St Andrews where the university is um during my time there was a councillor from the Labour Party the SNP the Liberals um, Lib Dems and the Conservatives. There were four councillors, four different parties. They worked together exceptionally well. And 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 I can't remember them, you know, there ever being a wrong word, but they were they worked so hard for the local community and can be often be very overlooked. D Daniel, I know that this point about the well, the decrease in the standing of politicians was where in conversation with you this podcast idea originated. So would you like to add to this? Yeah, I, thanks. And I, I'd like to pick up in this respect on something that Stephen said, which I very much agree with. And that is that when we, when we ask ourselves about adversarial nature of politics, we want to focus on what sort of adversarial contact we're talking about. And as, as he says, at one level, it's about opposing policies, comparing policies. And my policy is being offered as the alternative to yours. So we are adversaries in the sense that we are debating policy. And I think one of the things that people imagine when you ask us, John, about the adversarial nature of politics, I think a lot of people are perhaps going to think about sort of the combative personal aggression and which, which, as Stephen says, that is separate from, from debating very strongly and passionately debating policy. And I am old enough just to remember when members of parliament on arriving in parliament were given offices to share with members from another party. Right? The clerks would say, ah, why don't you, you're a new member, why don't you go and share with so-and-so who's been a member for 30 years and she or he will really tell you that show you the ropes. By the way, they're from the opposite party or from from a different party, and that that, if you like, really showed how you could have passionate adversarial. And Wendy is absolutely right. Of course, this isn't anything new. Passionate ad, passionate advocacy for one side of politics or another is nothing new. And you could have passionate adversarial politics without any kind of combative 
personal aggression and that kind of, 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 of adversarial experience. So I think that is that, 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 that is my main feeling is that, that that as Stephen and Wendy both say, the 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 adversary the, the worst sides of the adversarial nature of politics today are nothing to do with the essence of politics. So there's a distinction being made by all of you in a sense between adversarial and combative or confrontational. Is that yeah, there is, but I think there, there's there's another way of putting it. And let, and let me reflect on my personal experiences with with Wendy. Is that and and, and actually with with Willie Rennie, who's a local MSP, Wendy and I fought an election, and I say fought fought. We both worked very very hard. Wendy won, and 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 she's you know you should work very hard. I mean, and be the good MP. We we were both passionate. What what it reminds me of is there are certain things that are just business when Wendy was out there trying to get me out of a job it was not personal it was not for any other you know it, it might be not like Wendy come in um but it, it, it wasn't personal and I think that's that's something when you're talking to people from from, from other lines of, of work I'm, I'm not saying you know that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do now that's not to say it's not hard and that's not to say it doesn't hurt but if you're in this business I'm afraid then that's 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 the way it's got to be sometimes, unfortunately. And that's why I've got huge respect for people who stand for election from any political party. And I'd also say beyond that, if anybody's listening, if a volunteer chaps your door or you meet a volunteer from a political party, they are doing so because they feel that their community should be better, fundamentally, regardless of the party that they come from. So I think that separating out, you know, business um, is, is, is is something that's really important for us. Just to say, absolutely agree. I, Stephen, you were topic, talking the hypothetical where obviously the context between us was 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 the reality. Um, and it's interesting because, as Stephen knows, uh, my husband is a member of his his party. But, you know, there is that weird, well, this is the reality of, of what is strange about politics, that um, I, I've gone from a job where, you know, there was a panel of three people that interviewed uh, me for it to a job where 73,000 people will, will make the decision as to, to whether I retain it or not. And uh, the majority of them will make that decision not based on anything that I have done or not done, but on uh, often a, a national a national uh, perspective or indeed a, a very hyper-local hyper one um, for, for a variety of reasons. So, uh, yeah, I think you do have to very much separate yourself, but I do think you also have to um, come at it with, with the right attitude as well. And I think for Stephen and I, we absolutely did that. I think we probably disappointed some of the many, many journalists that descended uh, in North East Fife in 2019 because we weren't going at it. And I think there's absolutely no doubt some of the political and party operations can make it become adversarial, even if the, the, the candidates at the centre of that don't necessarily want that to be the case. Absolutely. And you have to remind your supporters and workers, don't you, that this is adversarial in the sense that Stephen was talking about and not personal. Yeah. So yes, yeah, you're right. And and look, one, one of the things that you do if you're a candidate um, is that you assume a position of leadership locally. You know, whether you want that position or not, you have assumed a position of leadership. And the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you speak to your activists about the way in which they conduct themselves is part of the job. Now, as 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 Wendy, you'll know, I know lots of Liberal Democrat activists um, in in in, in, the in in the constituency that Wendy represents. Wendy will know lots of SNP activists in the constituency she represents. She knows that the overwhelming majority are really good 
decent people who are passionate. You know, these are people that give up their Saturdays to go out in the rain and knock doors and, and try and persuade people one way or another. So you're you're right, but that that place of leadership has to come from, um, often has to come from the candidate who sets set, set sets the tone for a campaign. Yeah. Daniel mentioned the MPs being cohabiting with someone in their office with from another party. Stephen has mentioned the, and Wendy mentioned the effect of the first past the post system in creating or removing uh, uh, confrontational adversarial politics. Do you think that other aspects of process which could produce an increase in the amount of collaborative politics, a decrease in the negative effects of adversarial politics. Uh, let's start with Daniel on that. I, I very much think that there can be and should be, because going back to what we said at the beginning, the, the gap between perception and reality, the perception of non-constructive, destructive adversarial politics is doing an enormous amount of damage to trust and confidence between the public and the political class as a whole. And I think what we need to be looking for is way, ways of using process in Parliament to show the world more effectively how much of what goes on in Parliament is principles-focused, shared principles among members of different parties, and is very much what Stephen was talking about, about making the world a better place. And I think there are ways that we can do that, whether it's focusing on the ways committees are encouraged to make public contributions. Stephen talked about yeah, sitting on a committee may not look very exciting to the outside world, but the, the, the results of that committee's work can perhaps be used and deployed in a way that focuses more people's attention on the very strongly effective, collaborative and non-adversarial work that is done in Parliament. So I really think this is one of the most important things at present. Trust and confidence in politicians as a class is at a dangerously low level. And so much of that is not deserved. So yes, use process to focus more people's minds on how much of the work is, is going well. Wendy? I mean, I was thinking before I came to the session about sort of some of the very practical aspects here. And I think um, it, it is trust in politics, but I think it is particularly trust, trust in, in, in Westminster. And then I was also thinking that, you know, the absence of a revising chamber in Holyrood presents its own uh, situation in relation to the role and work of, of the committees. And when I think about the select committees, I think they're very, they're very good, but they're very different, aren't they, from what you see in other European uh, countries in relation to what they actually do in relation to government legislation. Um, for, some committees will look at so, for example, the media bill has been looked at by DC, DCMS eh, prior to its publication. But for, for other committees, Scotia Affairs being the one I sit on, for example, you know, the committee picks up different various topics and, and does their inquiries and, and presents the reports. So I think there is... I think there's lots of good things happening, but I think the key issue for me is the government control of, of business, particularly in the Commons, which means that we get into a position where uh, we have a reputation for scrutinising legislation poorly. And the reason for that is because actually we don't get the time 
to do it. So if we look at in, in the parliament that Stephen sat in, we saw a big increase in the number of things like ministerial statements and urgent questions. But what that's done is it's actually curtailed the time for debating either at second reading or report stages. And, you know, the other parties uh, don't have control, control over that. The other aspect, and, and you would expect me to say this as currently the fourth party in, in Westminster, is the fact that back to that two-party system, first past the post, the processes in Parliament are set up for two, maybe three parties. Um, and as a result, the only reason I sit on Scottish Affairs Committee, for example, is because Labour gave us a space. Um, otherwise, uh, Liberal Democrats wouldn't be entitled to any spaces. So that very part of that we've all agreed as a group is a really important way for a backbencher to get to understand how Parliament works, gets to understand processes, and indeed make a difference and work in a non-partisan way is actually not possible for uh, members of the, the other smaller parties. And I think we do need to take, take, take a look at that. I'm very conscious that if you think about those backbench MPs that tend to be, you know, Labour or Conservative, who have kind of ploughed their own furrow, as it were, and become kind of subject specialists uh, to have the time. That would be lovely. But they, they, they have built up those non-partisan expert reputations because they've had the time and space to do that, primarily in the first instance via select committee work. And the fact that that, that is, is just basically not possible for a number of MPs, I think, means that all the issues we've just talked about in terms of how Parliament may stymie good behaviours, that, that, that's what we're seeing. Stephen? Yeah, and... And Wendy's just touched upon a really important point about the way that Westminster, you know, the way it's set up, the way that you have that first-past-the-post system, the way in which the government has the order paper, and, and actually the very name, opposition to oppose, you know, because actually you're not going to oppose everything that the, 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 the government's um, doing. And I, I think there also there's a cultural challenge here for all of the political parties. You know, if we think about the UK, people perceive 2019 to have been a landslide um, for the Conservative Party. Well, actually, they won about 41-42% of the vote. They did quite radical things with that because they had that, in inverted commas, landslide. But a different political party won the election in each constituent part of the UK. Um, there were large tranches of the UK which will be unrepresented within the current government. Now, that's a system that, that, that we have, but it sort of lends itself um, to to, to that winner-takes-all approach, when actually the UK, Scotland, are diverse, where people have a wide range of views, and the whole idea of a parliament is it should be bringing in different voices from different generations, different backgrounds, and also different geographically. And having criticised Westminster, I'll also reflect on what's been going on recently. For example, we've seen a, a great deal of controversy in, in the Scottish Parliament about the SNP Green um, deal in government. And if I can touch on that briefly, I mean, the Scottish Parliament has a system whereby it's not first past the post. If it had been first past the post, the SNP would have had a thumping majority and it would have made life for the chief whip of the Scottish um, National Party and the Scottish Government's chief whip much easier, but that's not the system. So the way in which they thought, well, we can get things done was to do a deal with the Greens. And sometimes I think when we are looking at this, and it's not perfect, and there's a lot that can be done better, obviously, but I think sometimes people forget they're the maths. That's the deal that people dealt with you. They did not provide a majority. And actually, if we look upon this, I think we often find that people beyond the political world, quite although they like the adversarial system, 
They also quite like it when parties are seen to work together sometimes as well. That's not to say there's not a place for the debate and the clash, if 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 if, if, if you like. But but people are there on on, on their own merit. And, and as Wendy said earlier on, your ultimate boss is not your chief whip. It's not a party leader. It's your constituents. That's for that's for everybody. You know, most of your job is taken up with constituency business. So I think there is a cultural issue, but I think one that needs to be addressed. Um, certainly at Westminster with the way that it's set up. But we're also seeing that shift in cultures in places like um, Holyrood and in Cardiff Bay as well, as, 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 as even sort of 25 years on from the establishment of devolved administrations, things are still evolving and, and, and changing. And yes, I think Holyrood's slightly better, but that's not to say, you know, improvements could be made as well. We've talked in terms of positive aspects of adversarial as opposed to confrontational forms of politics about testing of policy, I suppose, has been the main one. Are there other things which might be lost by having a less adversarial form of politics? Or would the benefits of reduced confrontation, at least, entirely be positive? Uh, Stephen, could you start off on that? Well, I'll start off. Look, let me talk about some of the challenges that we face in terms of the adversarial nature of politics. I think the spread of social media, but also the way things are perceived has led to increased polarization. And we've seen, you know, for example, foreign policy or foreign foreign influencers like, like Russians, frankly, cleave in with that polarization so that you get issues where people feel hopelessly divided on something. Um, and I think sometimes that we we need to consistently be thinking about things like disinformation and polarization and the adversarial system can feed into that that's not seen adversarial systems wrong it's just to say that these are new challenges or evolving challenges to our democratic system on the other hand i think politics matters i think that people should feel passionate i think they should disagree with each other and actually if you look at um, and, and it goes back to something that was commented on at the, at, at the start, where we disagree with each other, we have proper part, we have parliamentary processes. We pay for people like Wendy um, and, and, and our team to be at Westminster because fundamentally we as a society benefit if, say, a proposal at the start of the parliamentary process should hopefully be better or better scrutinised by the end of the parliamentary proposal. And that's where adversarialism has absolutely has a role to play. And also where scrutiny of government has a role to play. Governments don't always get it right. A good opposition is doing government a favour because it makes that government sharper and hopefully better at its job. The opposition won't always see it like that, but hopefully that is the system. So I think we've got new challenges that we need to think about but you do not want to lose that adversarial element entirely it would make for a pretty dull world yes the notion of opposition as it emerged of course was associated with the idea of loyal opposition which had inbuilt within it the idea that it was bringing benefit daniel well ironically i think that i've said if you have too much apparent adversarial attitude, then you lose public trust and confidence. Ironically, I think if you don't have enough adversarial policies, you also lose trust and confidence from the public because the public wants to feel that they're getting what they voted for. As, as Stephen and Wendy have both said, the public choose who to vote for, which raft of policies to vote for, and they don't want it to look 
too cozy, if I can put it like that, when you get to Westminster or Holyrood or Cardiff, wherever it is, it, it, they want the policy differences that Stephen was talking about being debated passionately on the doorstep need to continue to resonate within the parliament or with, with, within the assembly, because there is a danger that members of the public will start to think, well, they pretend to disagree on these things when there's an election, but actually, look, in reality, they, they agree on everything. So, ironically, trust and confidence depends on not having too much adversarial nature in politics, but it also depends on having a proper adversarial nature attached to the policy and the principle. Wendy? I probably don't have, have much to add. I, I agree uh, with what's been said so far, and particularly Daniel's point that you know you do need some some uh, um, uh, adversarial uh, natures in the politics. I mean, it is that point of this is you know life skills, isn't it? You know that ability to successfully argue your case to pers pers persuade others is is core to to political beliefs. I think it again comes back to me around. Um, getting people the right ability in, in, into par parliament and you know there needs to be challenging aspects of it in order to be able to to, to do so um, and yeah it, I, I think that is alongside trust in politics I think the belief that people and um, good people have been attracted into politics is something that that uh, that, that has been has been lacking of late I mean I do joke about my own imposter syndrome and say oh you know it's been been well seen to now but then there's sometimes I say I should feel an imposter syndrome in this place that is a right and appropriate thing to thing to have you know to to, to be um challenged by people with with ability uh, and intellect so um the other bit for me is just around negotiation and um, getting to a place of consensus does not mean necessarily giving up on your principles or, or finding that you completely dis disagree, but it is about finding the issues that you particularly care about uh, from a party perspective and an individual perspective, and then being able to deliver deliver that, that outcome. But I think, yeah, that ability to scrutinise legislation properly and having the time to do that, I think one, our parliamentary processes um, have basically deprioritised that. And unsurprisingly, the parties in relation to the selection of their candidates have deprioritised that as well. I think increasingly parties select people who are who are good campaigners and, and there's nothing uh, wrong with that. But you need to look at the whole piece. And, and I was on the speakers conference uh, that's just uh, met looking at um, how we improve, um, you know, terms, conditions, but also behaviours, culture in relation to, to, to staff. And, um, you know, I, I firmly believe that the fact that there is a lack of any training to be an MP. <laughs> I always say being an MP is a little bit like being a GP, that you have to know a little about a lot of things. But but GPs have also gone through medical school in advance. And realistically, that is is, is not the case for MPs. And, and I do think there is... Um, in terms of party selection processes, more that can be done. But when we, then we look at party finances and how that might be done, it's 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 not surprising that the nature of party politics means that the focus moves very quickly into what's the campaign for the next election as opposed to potentially properly e equipping candidates, particularly candidates that maybe are, are not, uh, not expected to win in a first-past-the-post contest. That leads very nicely to our last question, which is the sort of one we use normally to sum up these podcasts. If you've got one brief suggestion as to how to reduce the adversarial nature of politics, but in a beneficial fashion, 
what would that be? Let's start with Daniel. More public involvement. More public involvement in Westminster or Holyrood or Cardiff, Stormont. Not just having members of the public come in and spectate, but having members of the public involved, whether it be giving evidence to select committees in a way that they feel really makes a difference, or other ways of them being involved in the legislative scrutiny process, the committee process, so that people will see the best side of the of what we've described as the policy adversarial process in Parliament, and they will see how much of what they see of the combative side is not crucial to the real workings of Parliament. So get members of the public in and involved as active and not just as spectators. Wendy? Yeah, as you would expect me to say, as as the president of Lib Dems for electoral reform, I, I do think it, I do think we need electoral reform at a Westminster level because I think that does change change the game. Now, don't get me wrong, that that brings uh, uh, challenges, doesn't it? When we think about what we see in some European countries currently in terms of that real spectrum of, of, of parties, but I think ultimately, when it comes down to it, for me, it means that a voter can look at the government as eventually results and think that I had a part to play. In, in bringing that, that government together in a way that just completely uh, is lacking uh, just now. I mean, Stephen talked about the 43% um, the of the votes delivering an 80-seat majority in Westminster for the Conservatives. The reality is 45% of the vote delivered 80% of the seats for uh, the, the SNP in Scotland, and that's not a true reflection either. So um, for me, I think it does need that kind of fundamental shake-up to, to demonstrate that, that, that we are serious in terms of how we want to, to deal and work with, with the public going forward. And lastly, Stephen. Yeah, well, I think both points, involvement of the public, but actually giving the public more, you know, the public feeling they've got ownership. And Wendy made a good point. When I was at Westminster, um, my first term, we had, the SNP had 56 out of 59 seats, so about 90% of the seats on 50% of the votes. I think I remember making the case at the time that's not representative. Um, so it, it, it is giving people... So I wouldn't add to what Daniel and Wendy have said, because I, I agree absolutely with both of their points. So maybe I'll talk about culture and the fact remembering that, by and large, everybody's in this for the right reasons. So please, please, please focus on the policies. Don't focus on, on, on the people. I know that's easier said than done, but that's an appeal to the politicians as well who've got a position of leadership in these things. Thank you. That has been extremely interesting and admirably amicable. Thank you to Wendy Chapin. <laughs> thank Always. you to uh, Stephen <laughs> Gethins and thank you to Daniel Greenberg. And thank you everyone for listening.